Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All Things Podcast, episode 89 project-based learning. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you want to support us, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. You can review us on that Apple podcast or on the podcast platform that you're listening to this on. You can also check us out on Patreon. There's only a couple of tiers right now, but the $3 tier will give you a shout out in the podcast and we'll share a link to your website in the show notes. And probably the most important one is just to tell your friends that we're here and ready to be listened to. And if you or your friends are ready to go a step further, you can come hang out with us. That would be on Discord. Our Discord server has hundreds of members in there all chatting away about their different web development, regular programming, or other different things, TV, movies, whatever else, all chatting away in there. Uh, yeah, so everyone from all different experiences. We need a better advertisement for our Discord, probably a little bit smoother because I make it up every single time for the most part. But anyway, Weekly Pain Point, Mike, please take it away. All right. Uh, I, I like the makeup every single time, though. Yeah, I like the the improvisation and the mistakes and stuff like that. It's good. Pre-record, not pre-recorded. Um, but yeah, my weekly pain point this week is bouncing between a million projects. I don't know what it is, but uh, over the last week, I had like a lot of different assignments that I had to do, and I was working all day. But at the end of the day, I felt like I got nothing done because I had to do a million different things on a million different projects. And I got like, you know, a tiny bit done on this thing, a tiny bit done on that and a tiny bit done on that. I communicated with someone there. And then like I felt – A, I felt exhausted because I think this combination of the whole COVID situation and lockdown and quarantine, not knowing when it's going to end combined with having a ton of work has kind of beat me down a little bit. Um and and the fact that there was just like a million different things that I had to do. This week has been a lot better, the start of this week. There's just been more concrete work for me to do. Like I actually had to go back and do some UI work, which I haven't done in a long time. So that's been kind of cool. And then, again, some project management stuff as well. But uh, that's about it for me. What about you, Matt? Uh, so my weekly pain point is not work-based. It is life-based due to the quarantine life. And uh, mine is is that it's the new year and it's never your year. And I'll explain that. Uh, I have, I am now personally never again, and I, I say this now, but it's not like a vow or anything, but I am, I will at this point never again say happy new year and just to, uh, enjoy the festivities of the new year because I go to new year's parties and such, I will say it's the new year instead of happy new year because at least it fits in with everyone. And uh, if someone says this is my year, it's not your year. It's never anyone's year because at this point. Everything's destroyed, and it can be destroyed in a matter of, like, a week or two. So I've now reached, reached a point in which I've given up, and it is never a good year or a new year or even a good decade. That is never on my mind. It's just another day. So that, I don't know, a little bit of a downer in the episode, but that's, uh, that's I was thinking about this, I was thinking about it last night. I was like, you know, I'm done. I'm do-. Like, we went to a big old jolly uh, New Year's party, which was great. I really liked it and everything else, but... It was celebrating the year to come, and look at the year that came. So I'm just <laughs> going to enjoy the New Year's parties as the night, and be like, yeah, hooray, you know, it's great, and have fun that night, but I'm just going to do things day to time now. I know. And if you say, it's my year, well, will it be if we accidentally go into quarantine again, or we accidentally get a disease all over the place, and then we have to go into quarantine again? Will we? Who knows? So I don't know if that's depressing. I don't know if that's bad, but that's... uh. That's a conclusion I I, I I raised in my own head last night. Mike is slightly shaking his head. <laughs> it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Like we've all been beaten down, but uh, I think we're we've all had that experience, or at least I have as well, where I've just sat there and been like, "Yeah, I'm done." 
Like, I'm not planning anything in the future anymore. Like, I'm just, I'm literally going to live it day by day and just do what I have to do that day and then go to sleep, wake up and do the thing, whatever I have to do the other day. And I'm not even going to think about financial situation. I'm not going to think about world situation. Like, screw traveling. Like, I'm never going to travel again. Or, like, I'm not going to, you know, plan out traveling. Oh, yeah, that's it. It's over. I was asked, if I was asked, uh, maybe a family member, I can't remember, I was asked, what am I doing for Christmas? Nothing. What do you think I'm doing? Nothing, because we're not we're going to be locked down. So nothing. Yeah. It's but on on the other hand, like this will end, in my opinion. <laughs> Hopefully sooner than Christmas, but I don't yeah, want to. Yeah, exactly. I, but I don't want to get my it hopes will up. Will end before Christmas. Like it's just we'll figure it out. I think the world will figure it out. We might be it might be a slightly different world than uh, what we came into with, but uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like handshakes going away is okay by me. Like I don't really care never going to shake anyone's hand again that's fine you know what i mean like there I, are some, some i don't agree with that like i don't like people are saying that i don't think that i think that like a, like once we get inocula and like if we get a vaccination for covid-19 immediately things are going to or immediately or close to immediately things will return to oh i'm safe now like you'll just get that idea of like i'm safe now and so you know maybe but the th- my my not not to not to rant uh, and go off topic too much, but my idea is that like people will have more awareness of how flus transmit. And the idea, like a lot of people were always germaphobes and there were a lot of people already that weren't shaking hands, right? Because right. they knew how the whole system works. And now more people will know that. So like, it's just, there will be no reason to shake hands. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think shaking hands is going to be very prevalent. Can we bring out the Spock? Over. Like, is that, should that be the thing we do? Just, I mean, between Trekkies, live long maybe. and prosper, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think the fist bump, fist bump, is still going to be in place and just waving, just hello. Like, I get the handshake, but I don't, I don't think it's necessary in these kind of times. Not in this time, no. Good lord, yeah. don't be shaking hands right now. I'm talking post all this crap. I don't know. We'll see. I guess we'll, we'll see. see. I think. I think we maybe we'll adopt the bow. A very slight bow. I'd be okay with that. I had uh, I was in Japan and they do the bow because they yeah. don't shake hands in Japan. Like that's that's not a thing. They do the bow and the bow is fine. Like, I like the bow. It's pretty respectful and you kind of get it over with quickly. I prefer the Spock. I don't want to do the Spock because then you're going to be able to make fun do of the people Spock that can't and do the it. Bow at the same time, just the, that'd be weird. Hopefully, but, this doesn't mean something terrible in some culture. I'm doing the I'm live sure long and prosper for the for the listener sure out there. You sure it does. Of course, in some you said some culture. I'm sure there's some culture out there that thinks that this means like you know behead their children or something. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm sorry to those people, but I'm still going to yeah. be doing it. Yeah. And remember, it's not your year. Um, maybe that'll be my greeting. Hey there! Remember, it's not your year. <laughs> that is so dystopian. Like yeah. that is so dystopian. Where it's like society has given up. But I don't know. Um. I guess we're going on to the segments, Mike. Please, you're it's it's a it's a Mike heavy episode. I did not read the show notes. I was busy earlier, so Mike, please take it away, sir. All right. So this week we're going to be talking about project based learning. Uh, I'm going to go to segment number one, which is what is project based learning. Uh, so essentially, instead of watching tutorials on web development and getting stuck in like quote unquote tutorial hell, I uh, there's a different approach to learning about a topic or especially 
this topic, web development, than just sitting there and kind of going through classes, going through tutorials after tutorial after tutorial, even like, you know, following along a tutorial and doing a project is still, in my opinion, a tutorial based learning approach. Whereas with project based learning, what you do is you kind of find your, find a project that interests you in a particular aspect of web development. It, it doesn't have to be like, you know, an overarching project that, encompasses all of the technologies and i'll talk about all the technologies a little bit later but it can be just something small or something that's relevant to your life finding that project that interests you and then doing everything you can to solve that problem so it could be something like create a portfolio page like maybe you just want to get your name out there or get your resume online right and that that's a small problem to solve and what you need to do is you need to you know first you need to find a way to get it online so you need a domain name then you need a way to put the co- put your information on a on the web page. So you'll have to find out how what HTML and CSS are. So what you'll do is you'll probably look at a tutorial maybe of someone doing a portfolio. But what you're going to be doing is you're going to be applying that knowledge to your own project. And when doing that, you're going to be learning very many specific skills that apply to that project. And it's going to be a very motivating factor because as you're learning those skills, you're going to be using them immediately and you're going to see the result right away for something that you thought up and you are are doing because that's what you want to do. That's the big thing with with project-based learning. Whereas with tutorial learning, you're kind of doing what everyone's telling you to do, which isn't always the best way to learn something. And this won't apply to everyone. I know there's some people that work and learn really well from a, you know, a classroom type setting or a tutorial type setting, whatever. Um, but for me, especially, uh, Project-based learning has definitely taught me a lot more than just sitting in a classroom and learning what someone is trying to tell me. Um, so when attempting to do something specific, you learn many, many, many different skills. And one of the big things that you learn while you're trying to do, like let's say your portfolio page, is how to Google and watch YouTube and find resources effectively to be able to complete your project. That's something that is really tough to learn in a in a tutorial or classroom setting because they're kind of giving you the resources that you need to complete the project that you're doing whereas if you're doing something that you thought up on your own you're going to have to find those resources yourself and that in itself is a very very good skill to have because no matter what level of you know developer you are no matter what level of and like engineer developer whatever the big thing is is that when someone throws a new project on your lap you're usually not going to be able to go, oh, I know all this and just start typing and, you know, get, get it done. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to figure out how to solve that problem. And in that process, you're going to have to figure out, okay, I'm going to have to use this technology. I might have never used that technology before or that library or that text, whatever. Uh, so you might have to Google how to, how to use it. And by doing that, you'll learn what the most effective way is to Google something, what the most effective way is to read documentation, what the most effective way is to actually apply that knowledge that you learn quickly and do some testing, some quick scaffolding to see if that problem, that pro- that particular technology will actually fix or be usable in your, in your current project. Like that's a big thing that us developers do that um, I think is, it, it's one of those things that people have uh, anxiety over because they think like, Oh, I'm just Googling every, everything and I, I don't really fit in because I don't know everything off the top of my head. You shouldn't know everything off the top of your head. Like, unless you have a, like, you know, photographic memory and there are some people that do, there's no reason for you to hold little snippets of code in your head so that you can quickly just, you know, regurgitate that code as soon as you see a problem that's already happened. 
if you want to if you want to have your own database of stuff that you've used before that's great but again even that is a little bit gratuitous in my opinion because you can always google that same thing that you found before in the same way and the second time you're going to do it you're going to find it faster than the first time that's the skill is find, learn how to find your pro, find solutions to your problems rather than memorize the solution to your problem I actually That's have the, a, I actually have an addition to that as well. Yeah, is you know beyond beyond what was that last part that you just said? It was find, like it's learning how to find the solution to your problem. Right. So with that, actually, to add on to that statement specifically, is I also find it's also about learning learning a muscle memory or a way to almost like a quote mind, if you if you if you will. So I'll give an example of that. If you're completely new to WordPress, you have no idea what's going on, and you want to use WordPress for a project, you you have literally zero idea what it takes to set it up, do the database, do all the little pieces and everything else. But as you use WordPress, you will slowly gain the ability to learn how to fix some issues. You'll learn, obviously, how to set it up, how to get it working, how to import, export, back things up, etc. But every theme... Every single thing you do in WordPress, if you download different plugins, those type of things, all those things are different. So think about it that way. There's no way you're going to memorize every single plugin. There's no way you're going to memorize how every single theme does their thing. But if you've been using WordPress for a long time and then you have a project coming up that requires a certain theme, you you have that sort of muscle memory, that quote quote mind, if you will, where you're able to quote someone pretty with a pretty accurate range. You're going to say like, oh, I don't know how to edit the content in this particular theme. So it might take me two hours to learn that. But you know that part. You know, you know oh, I got the white screen of death, or, oh, I have this error, I have this, 50, like this 505 error, oh, my 404 pages aren't working, or whatever it is your problem is. Or I guess it would be a error 500, but regardless. Whatever, it, whatever your error is, you have an idea on how to do it. And you will Google it. You'll be like, oh, what's Air 500 and why is this? And you'll check certain things. You'll check your database. You'll check certain things. Those things will never go away. But you will know what to search and you'll know what to look at and you'll know how to quote it. But there's no way you're going to know what every theme and what every... Because those themes come out every day. So you're never going to know, oh, you know, I know exactly how this theme works. No, you don't. Because everyone works differently. So. Yeah, Absolutely. And to combine with that is like when you're doing project-based learning, that's not necessarily trying to get you away from like following a tutorial or following along with the class. What it allows you to do is while you're following along with the tutorial, if you choose that method, it allows you to see relevant portions that would apply to the project that you're doing. And really, those really stick in your head. Uh, I know this works for me. Like when I was working on a project recently, uh, it was a Flutter project, I kind of did a did a basic scaffold of my application and then i'm like I, I reached the point where i'm like i really need to learn how to how flutter structure works like i really need to see like a, a project being done from start to finish in flutter by someone that's knowledgeable in flutter uh so that i know that i'm on the right approach and if i if i'm doing stuff wrong or if there's just better programming theories that i could apply to my approach to solve this and what i did was i just found a tutorial online i, I believe it was a ketamine or something like that um and i followed along with the tutorial i skipped along i i went through it pretty quickly but as i was following on I'm like oh right i could use this in my project i can use this in my project and i can you know refactor this part of my project to fit more with how he's doing it because it makes more sense how he's doing it than how i did it it stuck in my mind really, really well. Whereas if I were to just 
go to that tutorial right away without starting anything, without having a project in mind. I think for me, at least, I would just be kind of lost and I would be in a state of, of, uh, of just trying to finish the, the, the tutorial as fast as possible so that I can move on to the next thing. And that's the problem with tutorial based learning for me is that I'm always in that, like, I just got to finish this. I just got to finish this so I can move on to the next thing. And I don't retain that information. And without retaining that information, there's no point to that tutorial because you're not solving anything. Essentially, you're getting some basis of understanding of basic programming practices, but uh, you can get those while working with already a project in mind in general. And that stuff will stay in your head a lot better because you can, again, apply that knowledge that you're learning in the tutorial directly to your project in some way. And usually what it'll do is like, it's not going to apply one-to-one. So when you do apply that knowledge, you'll have to somehow finesse it. You'll have to change it. And as soon as you start changing that knowledge, that's when you'll start learning it a little bit better, learning ways to, you know, again, problem solve those situations google it go to the go to the documentation of that framework of that language and figure out a way to use what what they said in your project and manipulating it allows you to remember it better it allows you to learn it better allows you to retain that knowledge a little bit better and use it in future projects uh, and and to add to that actually as well is so i'm i'm going to be using wordpress as an example a lot cuz I've, I've been working with it recently but uh, one of the things, for example, is if you if you were brand new to WordPress and you go through the original setup, you know that you have to go through, make a database, you know, get the users working, you know, that can access the database, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that type of thing per website is only done once. So if you never have any major problems or you need to reinstall WordPress, you're only doing that once. And so I'll find, I'll, I'll, I'll find, and this happens to me too, is if I'm learning something new, if I was brand new to WordPress, I would be worried because I'd be like, man, I'm never going to retain this database stuff. But as Mike's saying, you, you're going to revisit it in some capacity as things change, as things move on. So for example, if I receive one of those uh, Air 500s, I might go in and be like, whoa, like something's wrong here. I might Google the problem. It might say, hey, you know, there's something wrong with your database or whatever it is. Please, you know, go in and change this. As I start working, manipulating, modifying, and revisiting that database, all that stuff is going to stick. And so the next time I need to build a new website on WordPress, even though I don't specifically remember that login or that original setup screen, I'm going to be like, oh, right. This database needs to have this. It needs to have these prefixes. I'm going to be installing multiple sites, so it should have this different prefix, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's sort of where that's sort of where the repetition and all that really comes into play, and where it really sort of all comes together. And that's where you'll start remembering things, even if you're not doing the original setup, for example, over and over again. You will still be revisiting that database to fix things, to add things, to change things, or just to even explore if you like to explore your own program. And so you will slowly retain enough related information that you can sort of feel your way, if you will, through subsequent setups, for example. Yeah, exactly. So just, again, that repetition is extremely important when uh, when learning new things. And that uh, ability to fix problems again that's that's the key that's what you want to focus on not the ability to remember syntax not the ability to uh, remember the specific framework that you're using like a way of you know calling an api whatever that's not important it's it's good to know and it's good like especially if you're going to be using that language like if it's javascript and you're a web developer it's good to remember that like uh you know document dot get element by id will get an element by id and then you can manipulate it it's good to remember certain little things but don't spend all your knowledge and all your brain power trying to just memorize syntax and structure. Learn how to essentially learn and solve problems. That's the main point of project-based learning. And that's the the end goal for you is to, you know, 
fix, like get the, get your project running so that you can move on to the next project or so that you can continue to maintain this project. And then with that knowledge, you'll be able to build on it and go on and on because it's not easy. Like it's easy for me to say, okay, just Google the problem. But really in real life, uh, you need to know what to Google and you need to know how to apply that knowledge uh, that you see on the screen, like all those articles that you're reading to your own project. And that takes time. And that's where it, that's the thing that you need to focus on. So moving on to segment number two here, uh, I'm just going to go through some example projects that I think would apply. Like, this is not an extensive list of example projects, but I think I'm, I think it'll help people kind of think in a different way when they're, when they're trying to think of a project to do, uh, the main thing that I have, the biggest advice that I have is try to find something that you're passionate about or interested in or is useful to you or to someone else. So try to find something that you'll actually, you know, finish. Because if you're doing something that you don't care about, like if you're a uh, someone that's into gaming and then you just do like something that's just only related to dogs for whatever reason or cars, uh, that's probably not going to interest you. It's not going to hold your interest long enough for you to be able to finish the project especially if you're someone like me, uh, I, I need to be really invested in a project if I'm not getting paid, obviously, uh, to be able to finish it. So starting with JavaScript, if you just want to learn JavaScript, and again, this is separate from HTML and CSS, you just want to learn you know, the programming language JavaScript, there's a few projects that come to mind that you can kind of try to tackle. First one is sorting an array of names by last name alphabetically. So what I'm picturing here is like, the array would contain a first name and a last name. So each element in the array would contain like, you know, uh, Joe Smith. And then the next element would be like Bob uh, Johnson. And the next element would be like uh, Josie Harrison. And they would be separated by a space. And what you'd have to do is in, in JavaScript, you have to parse through, find the space, take the last name, and then put those in a separate array you know, link, map the arrays together, do a, do a, a sort on the one array and then, you know, uh, separate the, separate the arrays and have it so that one, only one is, is sorted. So array, the, the reason I, I started with the array sorting is because a lot of your JavaScript operations in any sort of business logic and any sort of, uh, in any sort of front end coding scenario, you're going to be dealing a lot with arrays, either iterating through them, sorting them, mapping them, uh, uh, compressing them, you know, removing duplicates, stuff like that. Like you're going to be dealing, arrays are a very, very typical problem that you're going to have. And it's important to tackle that problem right away so that you can answer those interview questions. You can, you know, you can solve the problems that your job will, will have for you that have to do with arrays. The other thing here is a console calculator. So what I'm picturing here is a couple of variables that you would name like X and Y. And then in, in the console, you would just, or, or in, in your application, you would maybe have, uh, you would maybe have it so that when you press enter, it allows you to define A. Then it allows you to define B. And then it allows you to define the operator that you want to do on A and B. So multiply, divide, you know, subtract, whatever. Uh, and then it, the the final output would be the actual answer. So it's a simple console, little little console application. Doesn't require a front end, but it'll teach you the basic arithmetic functionality of JavaScript, the basic you know uh, output input functionality of JavaScript variables, stuff like that. I think it's it's a cool little project that you could do. And then the next one that's kind of a little bit uh, a little bit building on that one is a tip calculator. 
So again, something that could output to the console, uh, you would just have A, an input that would be your total bill, and then B, B variable or the tip variable could be the percentage ver- uh, of the tip that you want to give, and then the output would be the actual tip that you would have. So again, arithmetic, math, something useful that you could use, something that you could actually show people uh, that that actually makes sense to, to someone those are the kind of small little JavaScript projects to get familiar with the language that I would recommend. Again, not an extensive list. There's tons out there. Think of one yourself. Try to, you know, manipulate it in certain ways so that you can solve it yourself. Try to, and then you have to Google each step of the problem, et cetera, et cetera. I actually have something to add to this. So this will probably be for the other, you know, pieces of this going forward as well. But one of the hardest things to do when you, when you're new to something completely, especially if you're very new, is to actually know how to Google something. So you don't actually know the terminology of what you're doing. So you might be like, I have this big, like your terminology might be, I have this big list of numbers and I need to order them from smallest number to largest number. What, how do I do this? And so you don't know the term array. You don't know like sort, you don't know, you know, the term method. You don't know all of these little program, like programming terms. And so these little projects that Mike's mentioning that are just more or less exercises to complement your project, if you're getting really stuck Googling, it might be worthwhile doing a related project, little or not a project, but a little related exercise like this. So you learn like, oh, this list of numbers is the array, for example. It sounds really easy. It sounds really obvious. But when you hit more complex problems down the line, and this happens to Mike and I all the time, it happens to everyone all the time. We, we just don't know how to ask the question. We don't know how to ask the question. We don't know what it is. And this will especially happen if you're doing something very proprietary, like using an API or it'll, or using something like WordPress or a specific CMS. This is the type of thing where you need to know that language. You know, you might think that Webflow is easy to use, but if you don't know what a CMS collection is, if you don't know what a CMS item is, if you don't know what a reference field is, and you go to Google your problem, you're going to have trouble finding the correct forum threads if they exist about your problem because you don't actually know what you're doing. And just as another brief little point to this as well is always try to break down your problem to simpler terms. So instead of you just typing in a huge sentence of your whole problem, break it down into saying like, in this case, how do I sort an array? Not alphabetically, not any of that. Look at it in pieces like, oh, this is how you sort. And then you yourself might figure out how to do it alphabetically. But if you don't, then you go, oh, I need a little bit more help. How to sort an, al- an array alphabetically. And the more the more you add to those searching, the more you're going to get used to uh, actually using those terms over and over again. And then that'll be burned into your mind. It will help you learn how to Google stuff. Because sometimes you might look up how to alphabetically sort something. It might be, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really easy, but like, let's just say it isn't, it's, let's just say it's a complex problem. You might be like, Hey, like I know how to do this, or I thought I could do this simpler, but like, I just found this script on stack overflow and it's 40 lines. And I thought I could do it in three lines. What the hell is going on here? Whereas if you look up that more basic problems, like how do I sort an array? Cause you didn't know whatever the command was, then you might actually be able to build your own solution, which actually complements your skill even more. So break down those Google searches because you can do more than one. It's not like you have one Google a day. You break it down into multiples so that you can you'll not not only repeatedly look something up, but you'll also learn like whoa okay this is how you sort now I'm gonna try alphabetically myself oh I'm stuck again now I'll look it up for alphabetically for example. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all that, all that is great advice. Like you just need to, again, learn how to Google, <laughs> but it's a lot easier said than done. Um, with the next, the next thing here is HTML and CSS example projects. So something that would combine, you know, create a static website, uh, something as simple as a resume or a portfolio page. Talked about that before. Uh, it's, it, it's good to know th- those skills. Well, it's a double whammy because a, you get something online that has, that represents you in some way that you can share with other people. Like if you're still in school, you can share with your instructors. If you're, you know, looking for a job, you can easily put that in your resume that you've created this portfolio page. Make, make sure to always link it so that people can go through your, from your, from your resume to your portfolio page. Um, and it's something that you've done. And always when you're building these, and this is going to apply to pretty much everything in this list, uh, build it responsively. So make sure that you're always building for any device size possible, or at least the most common device sizes. So, uh, you know, regular widescreen computer, then maybe a tablet size, and then maybe a phone size. So make sure it works on all three of those sizes, uh, because it's important to be able to reach as many people as possible. Because if let's say, let's say you build your portfolio page and you only build it for computers, assuming that all your employers will just look on it on a computer. Well, what happens if your, you know, the HR person gets your portfolio, they really like it on their computer and then they send it off to their, the actual, like the person that's going to be hiring you, like the project manager or the, the, the manager of your department and they're out and about and they just look on your, on your, on their phone and it looks like shit. Like it, it's all over the place or they can't read something. They're not going to hire you. Like it's, just, it's just that simple. So if you're going to be presenting something, assume that someone's going to be viewing it on the worst, po- worst case possible device, which is could be a phone, could be a computer in your case. I don't know how you build your websites. Some people build them, uh, you know, responsive, you know, mobile first or some people build them desktop first, but that's up to you and, uh, encompass all your devices. Second, second, uh, example project would be kind of a hustle here, which is build a website for your favorite coffee shop or restaurant or store. Uh, find a store around you that you really like that has a really bad website and just be like, pretend that you, they hired you to build a website for them and build one statically. Obviously you don't have to add a CMS and stuff in there because you're learning HTML and CSS. That's your primary goal. Uh, but what this does is that a, it's interesting to you. So it's an interesting project because you're doing something that, that you're most likely see the benefit of. Um, and B, what you can do is if you're looking into, you know, being a, a designer or a web, web developer, after you've built the website and you're happy with it, maybe go to that store and just talk to the owner. If it's a small lo- local coffee shop and be like, Hey, I already, I built like built this for you. Uh, I really like your shop. Maybe you've already talked to them before. So they know you be like, Hey, we can, you know, if, if we agree on a price, it doesn't have to be anything big. I can put it up for you. And then again, you have that experience and you get your first project done, et cetera, et cetera. It's a little bit of a hustle because um, they could reject it, obviously. Like there's no, there's no obligation on their part to give you anything for it. Like, uh, or, or they could accept it. So again, it's that hustle. Maybe you'll build a few of them before you get your first yes. It's part of the process of getting your first client. It's a, it's a hard one to do. Like just, you know, randomly building a website for someone uh, isn't exactly the, uh, the safest way to get a client, but it is part of the hustle. The next thing here is a simple informational website for your favorite game, movie, or hobby. So if you're a fan of, let's say, I don't know, Lord of the Rings, uh, build like a informational website about Middle Earth with a cool map, you know, a, a map that you can click on and go different places. Like that can be a really interesting little HTML, CSS challenge for you because a map is a little bit more difficult to do and, uh, but it's really interesting because if you're really into Lord of the Rings, again, you get that benefit and you get to share it with your friends and et cetera, et cetera. More chance of you to actually finish the project. 
with moving on here, uh, let's go to just front end in general. And front, by front end, I mean a kind of a combination of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Uh, so a little bit more advanced. Uh, here's where you can start building a little mini games. Uh, one example would be something like a rock, paper, scissors game, but it could be like tic-tac-toe or maybe an idle clicker of some like really simple one. Maybe, uh, it could be, it could be anything you can think of that's a really like a, a small little project game because that'll teach you a lot of things. It'll teach you how to manipulate JavaScript, how to manipulate HTML elements with JavaScript. It'll teach you how to use the canvas. It'll teach you how to, you know, work with event listeners. It'll teach you how to use states and stuff like that. It, there's a lot in there in a little mini game that, uh, will teach, that will let you learn and Google and figure out. And it's, it's a really good portfolio piece, in my opinion. I know Matt and I, we built, uh, clicks to riches, a little mini idle clicker, uh, with an artist's help as well. And that was a really huge learning experience for us. It was kind of a team of three, uh, and we designed the game, built a, like a lot around it. And it was one of the reasons that we landed one of our first big clients, I think, uh, because it was a Chrome app game and they were looking for a Chrome app developer, but, uh, it, it was kind of like a pretty big, pretty big undertaking that we did. And it, it did work out for us. Another thing here is use a public API to create a grid based layout website that can display the responsive content that you get back from the public API. So for instance, uh, there's a Pokemon API that's public where it'll list all the Pokemon. And all you have to do is, you know, hit that endpoint with an Ajax request or an HTTP request, and it'll send back a response of all the Pokemon. You can actually send it more commands of like, you know, only give me generation one Pokemon or only give me generation two Pokemon. And it'll, it'll send you back that in uh, in the response. And what you can do with that is you can build a grid-based layout of uh, all the Pokemon, like a Pokedex. So that's in, if you're into Pokemon, that could be something interesting. But there's hundreds of different public APIs. There's an API for animals. There's an API for sports. There's an API for movies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so whatever interests you, you can build a massive grid layout. And what that'll teach you is a, a very useful layout structure uh, because I'm not talking like, you know, use CSS grid. You could, but you can use Flexbox and, accept, and a combination of grid and Flexbox or block model, whatever. But it'll teach you a system where... Be, uh, you can actually manipulate boxes on in, in a HTML space. And that'll be really useful in the future because a lot of websites require you to display a bunch of content, either left to right, up and down, or up and down, left to right, whatever. Um, and doing that and being responsive at the same time is sounds easy, but it can get pretty difficult depending on how much data is in that uh, piece of content depending on how the pictures look like you know stuff like that there's a lot of gotchas when you're building something like this um so just keep that keep that in mind when you're when you're looking at a public api project make sure that you build something that kind of encompasses a few different elements uh to make it a little bit more challenging for yourself next thing here is a canvas drawing application so just build like a little mini ms paint maybe and uh you can even uh you know store that image into a local storage variable so that you can restore it later. Like don't use a backend for this because again, you're only focusing on front end. Uh, maybe you can have multiple images that you can showcase later. Maybe you can have a, 
multiple people drawing at the same time is a possibility. Although that, that would be really difficult to do with just front end. Now, now that I'm thinking about it again, it's, it, there, there is some intricacies that you won't be able to do with just the front end, but just focus in a canvas drawing application. You're again, you're focusing on a lot of the JavaScript elements, uh, a lot of JavaScript elements side, manipulating, manipulating the DOM with JavaScript, like obviously canvas canvas is a big one here. Canvas is very useful to know, um, because you can do a lot with it. You can do a lot of animation stuff with it. You can do, uh, a lot of drawing, like a lot of user input stuff with it. It is, it is a pretty cool, a pretty cool, uh, feature of HTML5. So get to know it. It's a good, it's a good one to know. I actually have a question for you. Um, and I think a lot of like newbies will have this question as well. When, okay, so some stuff, some stuff like in, in apps and whatever can be done on the front end or on the back end. So where is the line? Like, do you, would you lean more toward doing something? So for example, if you have an API that could be accessed via the front end, but it could also, you know, be accessed by a server and then have that front end pull from your server. So then, you know, effectively you're using the back end and then you're pulling from your own back end. Where is the line to you? Where, like if it's possible using front end and back end, where do you lean more towards or is it contextual? And another question how do you decide when something is not not completable? I don't know if that's even a word. Not completable on just front-end technology. At what point do you go, whoa, we need a server here or we need to make our own API here or something? Okay, those are, those are really good questions. So to answer the first question, uh, when do you need to bring a back-end in or when would I bring a back-end in uh, to a project a lot of it will have to do with authentication, like how secure your information needs to be. So, for instance, let's say, um, let's say you had some sensitive data that you were that you were trying to get, like user data. I would do that more on the back end, and I would, you know, encrypt that data from my own back end server and then send it to my front end if I had to do that. That's one reason. Second reason would be if I need to access it a lot. So, let's say the Pokemon API takes off and is huge. I don't want to rely on a third-party Pokemon API all the time. What I would do is I pull that API into my own backend, and then I would be hitting my own backend, which I can rely on because I'm controlling it as much as possible. So if there's a lot of people hitting it, I know if I need to scale up or scale down. Whereas a third-party API, they will either require money to scale up or scale down, or they will require them to be able to, you know, like be able to scale, which a lot of them can't. So. Those are the two biggest considerations. There are other ones like usability. Sometimes it isn't usable by the front end or certain features aren't usable by the front end of an API. So you have to do it in the back end. And I think the biggest one out of both of the ones that I said is security because anything that you pass into the front end is accessible by a person that inspects element. Everyone knows that. So if you're passing a password in to the front end, because you want to, you know, yeah, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. You probably shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's accessible by an inspect element. Um, so anything that has to do with user information, I always have a backend for that uh, because I don't want to store anyone's, you know, email addresses, uh, passwords, usernames, whatever, and any, like especially credit card information anywhere in the front end. Oh, that's yeah, all, no. That's all encrypted do not backend do that. <laughs> servers. Yeah, absolutely not. As for the second question, it, the first question kind of answers it as well. So anytime you're looking to have authentication anytime you're looking to have multiple users you're looking at a backend like you're going to need to spin up a backend 
anytime you're looking at collaboration, again, that's a backend. Anytime, really, anytime you're looking at any sort of, uh, you know, state management where you need to save someone's, you know, if they're entering a, a contact, uh, entering a form to fill out for something and you need to save their progress next time that they log back in again, log, logging in as a backend thing. So you need, you need a backend to that, um, to be able to save. So that, that would be my uh, suggestion. Any, and, and then third of all, uh, final point here is any sort of CRUD application. So create, read, update, delete. If you want to synchronize content between person's computer and their phone or their person's for, for, for a person to be able to log in on their, you know, on their computer and then use that same whatever application on their phone, that requires a backend, if that makes sense. So with that being said, let's move on to the backend. So what can we do on the backend side as a project, as an example project to build out our knowledge on the backend? Uh, one of them is create your own RESTful API. So I was talking about that, like, you know, the Pokemon API, the animal API, whatever, the movie API, create your own, uh, make it do something funny, make it do something weird, make it do something useful. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Like maybe you have really interesting quotes that you look at every day. You find a quote and put it in your backend API, post it on some Reddit form or whatever, post it somewhere so that people can access it and maybe people can use it. Uh, just create something interesting that that outputs data in a from from the back end um use passport.js to build an authentication server for oauth login and sso this is a much more complicated one anytime you're going to be talking uh, authentication it's a little bit more complicated but it is really important a lot of application development you're going to need authentication of some sort so if you want to get some, get a little bit more complicated and get a little bit better grasp on develop backend development, try to build in some sort of authentication into your application. Try to find an app that requires authentication and build around that and stuff like that. So again, I, I mentioned it because it is important. It is a little bit more complicated though. Uh, third here is create a backend that can do create, read, update, delete CRUD operations as they're commonly called. Uh, so anything like, like a to-do list is the most common one. And it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to create an operation in the backend that can, you know, add to do tasks, read the task, like send, send back the tasks in the API, update the tasks with a, with a, a like, you know, a, uh, a request and then delete the tasks as well. So again, that would be a really useful thing to do. Even though it's been done a million times, it's important to know that why it's been done a million times is because a lot of applications need that kind of functionality. So when you're in an interview or when you're trying to get a job, if you can show that you can do those four basic applications and add in authentication to that, because I think it's important, uh, if you can do those five, auth, auth, create, read, update, delete, you're probably set for almost any job out there, at least to start and to like, you know, to show them that you know how to do you know how to learn and you know how to apply your knowledge to something. Moving on to the full stack here. And full stack means literally everything I just talked about in one application. Uh, again, the first thing I'm going to say is to-do list. And I, it's been done a million times, I know. To-do list with syncing capabilities with a user account. Again, that auth element of a to-do list. If you can do that, if you can have a project in your portfolio that has all of those operations in it, a front end that's really nicely designed with response with responsive. It doesn't have to be amazingly designed. If you're not a designer, everyone like it's it's okay. But it it has to be responsive. It has to be readable. It has to be usable. Usability is a big thing. 
uh, you're able to, you know, perform all those operations, create a to-do task, you know, uh, edit the to-do task, then delete the to-do task. Then you're, you're, you're kind of, you've done every, like you, that, that's the most important thing. Like that's, that's the most important element of web development. In my opinion, a lot of different projects will require you to do all of those things with modifications. Like sometimes you'll have to schedule tasks. Sometimes you'll have to, you know, um, show a bunch of elements on the screen and have someone pick and stuff like that. But again, that's manipulation of data and it all comes down to being able to, you know, read, update, delete and create that data. So that that's why I keep kind of hammering the point of do crud, do crud. If you have two, like if you can have multiple application, uh, multiple crud applications on your portfolio that do slightly different things, that's going to be a big benefit for you. I'm trust me. And you're going to learn a lot when you're doing it, because again, the whole process of authenticating a user, creating a user as well is a little bit complicated. And once you have that to be able to then restore their account settings, restore their, uh, all their to do tasks or whatever, uh, is also a good step. And there's a lot of tutorials out there that can help you with that. But if you have your own project in mind, you can, you know, pull the tutorial, the information from each tutorial that you need and build your own version of it that you can show off then to, to someone else. Another thing you can do is a portfolio page with a custom CMS that allows you to add some stuff like skills, blog posts, uh, whatever, like whatever else you need to add without editing the code. And again, portfolio page is something that you should have anyway. So adding a CMS to it that you can build on your own, again, with like some, some sort of custom backend, maybe Node, maybe PHP, it doesn't really matter. Uh, that's up to you. Maybe even Python. Python's a big one that I kind of am being more and more interested in these days because uh, it's such an important language. It's used across so many different disciplines at this point that if you know Python, you can go from web development all the way to the financial sector, all the way to like the scientific sector to be studying this COVID stuff. To all the, it, You know what? It expands every single sector of the industry, like automotive, everything, everyone uses Python. Um, so if it's a kind of an important language to learn, so it's not necessarily like you could do a backend in Python, you could do in PHP, Node, whatever, um, that is able to then, you know, have a front, like a backend panel that you're able to then log into and edit your portfolio. Again, this is a full stack project, something that you can easily put on your portfolio, something that will benefit you because you don't have to go into the code every time you have a new skill or go into code every time you have a new blog post uh, or something like maybe your work changes and you want to show it, whatever, like a portfolio, like portfolio page on your portfolio, you can update that through the backend that you created on your own. That's a pretty big project again. Um, the other thing you could you could do is use a headless CMS because that's also valuable. Like the fact that you can plug in a headless CMS like Sanity.io uh, or the Netlify CMS, whatever. Even WordPress, like if you if you can plug in a WordPress head, head, headless, is is also pretty valuable to know, and you can easily show that off. Stuff like that. Just be creative with your with your project ideas. Nothing's impossible. Uh, obviously, limited to what you think you can at least accomplish in a, in a, you know, a reasonable amount of time, but you know, don't, don't think badly, but you're like, don't think like, Oh, I can't do anything. No, maybe start small, but as soon as you start learning, you'll know your capabilities of learning more and more and more. And, and I, actually, I want to add one thing to that too, is so usually in a, from a UX perspective for uh especially for a project or a product that's going to be shipped into production, into the actual public's hands, we will oftentimes try to remove any sort of fluff from it. So, for example, if you 
learn how to do some crazy slider with some crazy animations. But the actual page itself would gain no value from creating a slider that does all that stuff. Then in, in that production, in that production environment or a product that will be put into production, you would avoid making that slider. But if you're doing something for learning purposes, give that slider a go because you might learn a bunch of skills from doing that. And even if you delete it, because maybe you're eventually going to ship your portfolio page and that slider just looks ridiculous. You did absolutely learn a bunch of stuff. So you don't have to be as focused, especially if it's a project that you're just learning on and you're not shipping. And for portfolio projects, maybe like some companies are absolutely going to be looking for things like, you know, less fluff, good UX, good UI, good functionality, bug tested, whatever. But you know, there's no harm, especially in your first, in your first activities. Cause these, these, these kind of ideas are usually where it comes from in your first set of ideas to just really load up an application and like, again, even if you scale them back, you'll learn so much, whether you're adding, I don't know, crazy timers, animations, adding crazy progress bars, preloaders on pages that don't really load that long, stuff like that. You're learning all that stuff. And then that stuff can be added elsewhere. So all, the, so the production versus the just for play environment can, you can really treat your own projects like a playground and then just sort of, if they're going into production, eventually clean them up later. Because now you're that much quicker at doing your preloaders and whatever else you learned. Yeah, absolutely. Do as much as you feel comfortable with, in my opinion. Like, if you want to expand on one of your pages to the point where you wouldn't probably do that in a production environment, do it because you're just playing around. Uh, like Matt said, put that stuff in the background. Like, put those preloaders, put the, you know, compress all the images perfectly, even though it's not really that important. Get all that done. Um, because yeah, you'll absolutely use that in the future at some point, or you'll know when to not use it. That's another thing is like, you, once you do a couple, a few things, sometimes they might be, they might not work and that's okay. So, um, the last, last little bit here, last little idea here for a full stack application is a calendar application that will allow you to enter events, then send out a public link to people to view your availability. Uh, and then maybe you can add some permission management in there where like certain you can add users that can view your full calendar with the actual events. And then the public link will only contain, you know, blocks of time that you're busy. That's another, you know, user management one, which is important for a lot of companies. Like it, you'll have a lot of that most likely in the workplace where you'll have to manage permissions for users and stuff like that. That's why I bring that one up. Um, but with that, I think I'll move on to segment number three. Uh, what would we use? And in this segment, what I want to do is I want to outline a problem, a potential project that we could work on. Uh, we're not going to, but I'm just like just a, an example project. And I'll outline kind of what I would, what technologies I would apply or where I would, where my mind is thinking as I'm going through the problem and how I would go about learning some of these technologies. Cause this problem kind of encompasses a lot of different things. And I don't know all of it, obviously, uh, and I would have to learn a few things along the way. So to the problem. With the whole COVID thing, with the whole COVID disaster, uh, what will happen after the t quarantine time is up, everything will start reopening slowly. And with that, there has to be a measure of keeping track of people. Now, this is like a very controversial thing where like people don't want to be kept tabs on. But unfortunately, are you trying to track me, Mike? Is that you trying to do to me? Yeah, I'm trying to do. This is a tracking application, full on. Uh oh. Um, but I think honestly, 
this is the only way for stuff to stay open without having to continually quarantine. Like I know Matt and I were talking before he was saying, oh, we're going to have to quarantine multiple times. And there and, is a until way to some avoid sort of that. inoculation, like a vaccination exactly. is, is, comes out. Yeah, exactly. There is a way to avoid that. Um, and the way to avoid that is to track people that are infected and not infected and to have like a full on database where let's say you go to a store, a grocery store, and you, every time you go into a grocery store, you have to scan your QR code to get in. They won't let you in without scanning your QR code. If the QR code says you're clean, you can enter the store. If your QR code says you're not clean, you're infected, you, you get the hell out. Now, if someone in there is going through the store, comes out of the store, and then like a day later, it's found out that someone in there was infected because they're doing their testing. Everyone that was in that store at that time, because the QR codes was scanned, will get sent a notification that they've been around an infected person. They are now considered potentially infected. Please go get tested. But you are now you have you you are now banned from all locations for 14 days until you get test until you get a response from your test. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there has to be infrastructure set up for that. So that's why I like I was just thinking about this problem and I was like, there's a lot to it. Like there, it's not a very complicated problem to be honest. If you think about it, it's a QR code app uh, with. But what 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 it is is and I'll lay it out right now is you have to identify if the person has been in a place that was close to an infected person, identify if they've been marked as infected, mark a person as infected, mark a person as no longer infected. These are the functionalities that this kind of app infrastructure has to have. Generate a unique QR code for each person with their infection status, and then the ability to scan the QR code to check infection status at the store where, at which store and when the scan happened and mark that in the person's profile. That's really it. There might be some other intricacies, and obviously, when this applica- if this application ever comes out, and I believe China already has a working one, I think Europe is in the process of putting it out there. There, it is it, like the solution. The solution already exists for this, so oh, we're damn. not developing. I, I've, I've been staying out of the news, so I, I'm. Yeah. I don't even know what the numbers are anymore. So yeah, it doesn't matter. But regardless, this is something that that will be put into place. Now, I don't know if it'll be put into place in Canada or the United States, but China for sure. Europe, I think, almost guaranteed as well. Um, but. How would you solve this problem? Like what technologies would you take? For me, personally, I see it as kind of like it's obviously a full stack problem, but it also has two two front facing sides. One side is for administration. So they'd be able to see all the people. And one side is for uh, the user, like an app on the user's phone to be able to generate the barcode. And that's, th- those are the user facing sides. Then the back end will have to be a large database of users and a backend system, whatever backend system you want, that is able to, again, um, mark a person as infected, re- read that, like send that person's infection status, mark a person as no longer infected, mark that, mark a person as in quarantine, like pretty much change the status of a person and also store their, the details of where and when they scan their, their QR code. So, in my eyes, I would be what I know is I would probably be using Vue.js for the front end uh, of each application, so of the administration, um, the, the administration side, mm-hmm. where a like let's say a doctor, like now that I'm thinking about this some more, so let's say in a hospital, the system would be that um, the person's test came in negative, so that per that that 
person is now allowed to go to a store. So that would have to be somehow reflected in the application. Now, would that be done directly through the hospital systems or would a doctor go in there and scan that application, scan, like, you know, open their application, find that user and click uh, clean? I, I, I would sure. say it's just, I would say just for the purposes of the exercise, it would just literally be the doctor updates the status. So you need to sure. have a let's way say, to update say the, the status, doctor, yeah. however legally they want to do it, you know. Sure. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The doctor would update the status. So the doctor, the doctor has the administrative side of the application again built in Vue.js. The user would have their uh, front side of the application again built Vue.js. Um, as soon as the doctor presses that button, it goes to the back end. Mm-hmm. The back end, I would probably, I'm tight. I'm kind of torn between Node and a Python-based installation. Um, probably Node. I would probably do a node backend right now if I had to do it. And for a database, I would probably use like an SQL-based database because of the amount of data. I like Mongo, but I think Mongo wouldn't be able to handle that amount of data. It could track a whole a whole user base. Um, so SQL would probably be my solution for the backend. Which, like MySQL or MSSQL? MySQL. Yeah, MySQL would be what I would use, and uh, for the, f- and yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I would have to learn a lot in the back end in the Node, so I would have to probably, I would probably start. Where would I start? That's the question, and I like that. This is why I wanted to do it live because again, this is the process that you would be going through as you're picking a project. Like, where would you start? Like, do you start the back end, the front end? I'd probably start in the front end because that's what I'm most familiar with. I'll build a good front end interface for both sides that can, can that can then communicate with any back end through an API. Um, and then I would go to the back end because that's not something I'm really good at. And I would have to probably look at some tutorials, some... Uh, I would probably have to look at a lot of documentation, some tutorials, a lot of security stuff, <laughs> since this is very, very secure data that you'd be dealing with, like a lot of HIPAA compliant stuff, a lot of uh, health record storing, EHR record storing stuff. Like I'd probably have to take a few courses even or a few certificates to be able to even work with this data. So I'd look at that and then I'd look at just how to manipulate a database. Because again, all this comes down to is that CRUD operation. You have to edit a user's data. That's it. What's what, That's what's really CRUD stand is. for again? Create. Create. What's that again? Create, read, update, read, and delete. Edit, yeah, update and delete. Yep. That's all it is. Yeah. So even a complex application like this, all it comes down to is a CRUD operation. Yeah. That, yeah. Which is why when you learn it once, you kind of can apply it in a lot of different ways. Now, again, this there is some more complicated things. So, for instance, when a person would mark you as not infected there had to be a notification a push notification sent to your phone that sends you that you're clear and you're good you're good to go etc etc there's a lot of intricacies i don't want to get into them too much but i just wanted to put my thought process out there of how i would go about tackling this what technologies i would use what kind of hiccups i could see coming like again the security thing would be a big hiccup and i would have to spend probably a lot of time on uh stuff like that um, but then I wanted to pass it off to you, Matt, mm-hmm. to see if your response would be any different because we, we kind of think pretty like differently. Our stacks are a little bit different as well. Like would you use, what would you use for this? So my stack would probably, just because I'm, be- I'm more familiar with it, would be PHP, JS, and just HTML. Now maybe I would use something like Tailwind or something to do- build the actual UI, but that's what I would personally use. But how I actually <clears> – <throat> excuse me. How I actually architect these things is I don't start in the front end. I don't start in the UI. I actually 
and this might be because I have a little bit of, I don't know whether this is the right title, but it's like a little bit of system architecture where I kind of go like, what do we need? Do we need three, we need three databases, two of this, two of that. I have like experienced that in a professional setting. So what I actually, the first thing I thought of was we, what, what the first thing I think of, I should say is what, what do we need to have that's user changeable and user settable? So probably their name, their address, their, the, we need to have locations in there. So grocery stores need to have that. Uh, we need to have, we need to have those things be more or less flexible. So the address has to be properly formatted, but you can change those. The name, you know, there's tons of different characters in people's names. There's different spaces. Some people have three names, four names. Some have, I'm sure there's some have five. So we need to have that be variable. And because all of these things are variable, we need to have two, we need to have different types of inputs. So we need to have variable inputs with no restriction or, you know, limited restrictions. So maybe a character limit. We need to have some inputs that have, uh, fixed inputs. So something like infected, not infected, or investigating. Those you cannot, you cannot screw those up. Cause some doctors would not type, you know what I mean? Some doctors would type in and those, that is a field that needs to be very clear. You can't have one guy that says infected, one guy that says pending, one guy that says investigating. No, we need common terminology on those things 100%. So that would be a field where it's infected, investigating, or non-infected, something like that. So it's very clear across the board. Then what I would start to do is think, okay, because there's so much stuff that's variable, we need something in the system, something in the database that is absolutely, absolutely never changed and never duplicated. So we need something like an ID number. And this ID number points to a business. It points to a person. And this ID number is never repeated and is never used again in the database. ID number, whether it's alphanumeric, whatever it is, we need a a unique ID. So even if Mike is person one, and then I, I, I go to sign up and Mike's been deleted from the system, I'm not person one. I'm never repeated. That way, when we do our systems to access the data, we only ever use the number. And the reason why we have that is because somebody can change their name, change their address, change the store address, change the store name, everything else. Everything is variable. And we don't want to rely on anything except for something that never changes past creation. So we would put that in our, in my, in my case, a MySQL database. Now, after we architect this system, we uh, what I do is I, I just throw together like a real basic, you know, no styling short of, you know, making it readable. Everything's left aligned thing. And so I add like here, this is okay. We need to have create. So we're going to have create, um, create a person. So how does that get done? Okay. That's an admin panel. Okay. We need to have change status. So how does that get done? Then we have a, you know, an app wherever it is that changes status. And we, and I make those components. Now, the reason why I do with no styling is because sometimes the back end will handle things that I don't, I don't anticipate or whether the back end can easily anticipate certain cases. And sometimes the back end, maybe you want to offload some of it to the front end. So for example, if the person's profile background is supposed to be green based on the fact that they are cleared and they're not infected, you do not want to have another field in the database that says green. You don't want to have one field that says clear, you know, all clear, not infected. And another field that's another field that says green. You let the front end handle that. So there's, you know, little tiny intricacies in there. So I do actually the front end in depth last. 
Because sometimes the bit, the backend storing out so much data that your UI just isn't equipped to handle that much data. And so you have to have little hideable sections and different things like that. So I do the, I do the database last or I do the, uh, the, the front end last. I do the, the UI last. So once everything's been created and we decide what to do, like, you know, where we need to decide some UX things, where, where does this need to be done? Does this need to be done on the phone? Does this need to be done on a tablet? Does it need to be done in an app? Do they need an app? Do they need, does it, is it going to be sending email? Is it going to be sending, is it going to be sending it to email? Is it going to be sending it to a web app? What is it going to be sending it to? Once we decide all of that, then we can then, and and the back end is done. Like I said, with the IDs and everything's working and we have a, we have create, modify, and, you know, delete all ready to go, right? All those things ready to go. You know, the doctor has his app. This guy has this app. You have your status app, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then I start designing the UIs. Okay, this one's for the doctor. So the doctor might need more information from the back end. Maybe the back end has additional medical information. So he goes in because the doctor, for example, might need to know the radius in which this person was. So there's an, there's an unknown status in this. So if I, if I go from this house over to the local food basics, which is, a, which is a food store in Canada, supermarket in Canada, I go over to the food basics and I scan in. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually in an unknown status. Let's just say I am tracked at home. I, I'm in an unknown status from home to food basics. So as a result, the doctor might want to alert some of the other businesses around food basics if I went in there and I was considered sick. So he might, his admin panel might be a little bit different where he can go in and be like, this person's infected. This is their radius. And this is where they, this is where they probably traveled, you know, something like that. So the, he might need a little bit more. Whereas the consumer, if let's say it was me and I was sick and I didn't know, I walked around the food basics, I get home, I get, I get to, it, it gets determined. It gets determined that I am sick and I'm sick. I'm sick for, you know, the, the 14 days or whatever. So I need to be put into the infected status. They need to then call me and say, Hey, along your route, there was a gas station. You know, you didn't check in there. Like, did you go in there? Maybe they need to call and ask me questions. Maybe they need to alert other businesses, like I said. So we need to like have something more for the doctor. But for on, on my thing, all they need to, all they need to tell me is, Hey, you were in food basics. You're now home. Stay home. Period. That's all the consumer really needs. So you don't want to overwhelm the consumer with all this data because the consumer is going to start panicking like, oh my God, did I infect all these people? Whereas the doctor is supposed to be handling that. And the doctor is just supposed to say, consumer, stay home. Doctor, doctor, you deal with this basically is, is, is how this works. And then, I mean, that's really it. That, that, that's how I deal with it yeah. is that's yeah. my UX, my UI for, for a, a high level. That's how I deal with it. Yeah, that was really good. That was oh, geez, an, ex- an excellent breakdown. I, I think like this problem is really interesting. Um, I wouldn't want to solve it. For sure. Like I wouldn't want to be the developer unless I'm, you know, unless I'm part of a team and we have a lot of people that are really good with security and stuff on the team. Uh, but it's really interesting problem to think about because it's not very complicated, but there's so many little things that you could add to make it so much better and stuff like that, even though it, it is a very controversial thing. I, I'm expecting to get attacked for even mentioning the fact that there is an app like that applications like this should exist or whatever. Um I just think like as much as I do value my privacy and everyone else's privacy, I don't think there's a way for us to not quarantine in the future without something like this. Like I think this is the only way. Now, whether you trust your government to be able to use that data only for the COVID stuff, that's a totally different conversation. Um, there, there, there was but, already talks. I saw he- only headlines. I didn't read the articles. There were some articles that were saying like we need big government during something like this. But then, will that big government ever recede back to the smaller government it was before this whole thing? 
before this whole thing went crazy. And, you know, I guess that's the main question. Like, will it recede? That is the main question. Yeah. And at what point, like, what is certain, like, I don't know. I'm I'm very torn on this topic because as much as I value my liberty and my freedom to be able to go somewhere and the government not know where I'm going – I also see the benefit of it in certain situations like this. Like if there was a known like, – let's say it wasn't even COVID. Maybe it was measles or something stupid like that, like something smaller. You know what I mean? If this would, had already been in place and we were in a place where someone was infected with measles and we had a system like this for the entire population, they could easily send out a notification to anyone that was in that space that was infected by that, that like, by the person that was already in that space. Like it would have been an easy transition. Or this with this COVID thing coming in, if we already had something like this, like if we had mass mass surveillance and mass everything, it would have been a little bit easier to deal with for sure. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. Again, it's how much you trust your government. I I'm I lean in Canada. I lean towards trusting the trusting side of it. Um, if I was in a different country, probably not. A couple of different countries, <clears throat> but right right now I lean towards trusting. But the problem is, is like. If you trust it now, would you trust it in the future if someone gets elected that you don't trust? It, it it's a very complex topic, and I understand I understand people hesitation people's hesitation with uh, allowing something like this to go on. I just don't see an option, a different option. But regardless of the political talk, um, I think that's it for the segments. Yeah, you want to move on to the web news? Yeah. So um, this week, this week uh, I did the web news here, and the web news is hardware obsolescence through software. I know this is a controversial topic, um, and this is just going to be our opinion and, and our take on it and our observations in, in many cases. And I just have two real, real brief points that I'll just literally say out loud now and then allow Mike and I to kind of chat through them. So Windows 10 uh, is a terrible experience uh, on a hard drive, on an HDD. That is a fact, and uh, I know, and anyone who says that they're fine with it, uh, they're not, and I don't care. And even if they're fine with waiting 40 minutes for their computer to turn on, and that's not, an, and that's not an exaggeration. If they're fine with waiting 40 minutes for the disk usage to go from from 100% to maybe like 90, um, it's not fine for the general public. So sorry, but you're wrong. Um, and also, the iPhone uh, slowing down due to battery health. So as your iPhone's battery aged, obviously it holds less charge. And so this was a big controversial thing, which I don't really want to dive into the controversy too much. But I, uh, Apple was slowing down the processors, I believe, or slowing down the phone, uh, lowering its overall performance in order to keep the battery endurance, keep that battery lasting as long as it did in its better health. So I think the first one is obviously something Mike and I, well, not obviously we had talked about it before, but we had talked about it before the show. And this is something that we've experienced. Uh, I used to have an old Lenovo laptop. I think Mike still has the same one. It was a Lenovo Y500, and it started out on Windows 8, was then updated to 8.1, and then was updated then to 10, and subsequent versions of 10. And I will very, and there was a very clear line between 8 and 10. 8, you were still, you, you would potentially have trouble. Like I had, you know, disusage trouble and that type of thing, because a hard drive is slow, you know, relatively speaking. But in something like Windows 8 and 8.1, you can do things to alleviate that. You can do things to help it and make it absolutely usable. Yeah, it is noticeably slower, but when you click calculator, it opens up within the first 10 seconds of you clicking it on something like Windows 8. When I updated to Windows 10, it got to be the point where when I did a large update to Windows 10, it would actually say, this is taking longer than expected, hang on, or something like that, or like, hang, like, 
you know, keep with us or some, you know, some crap like that. But the fact that there's an error message or a status message while installing a major update like that is, first of all, indicative that they're aware that there's a problem here. Second of all, the Windows 10, in my opinion, is not compatible, not compatible, I want to say this, with an, with an, an HDD, a hard disk drive. Now, I was a skeptic, and I had a 5400 RPM drive that came with the, dro- came with the laptop. I then purchased a 1 terabyte at the time, a uh, 7200 RPM drive, which did help slightly, but not that much. Uh, this was because SSDs were rather expensive at the time. This was years ago now. And then I eventually upgraded to an, an SSD and never looked back. Now, you might be like, well, that's obvious. But I want to talk about how dramatic this is. I'm not kidding you. Right now, boot up time on that thing was, even with a bunch of stuff starting, 13 seconds with an SSD. If I had to turn it on cold, oftentimes 40, and this is not an exaggeration, 40 <laughs> minutes until it was usable. And then when you clicked on something, it became unusable again until that thing loaded. It was because the disk usage, or specifically the disk active time, was 100% throughout the whole thing. And so anything you did was queued into this queue of stuff that the disk had to do. And so you're waiting in line, essentially, for something like calculator, as simple as that is to open. If I had to restart that computer, it was literally, literally 40 minutes. Now, we had... had um, suspicions if you remember mike that maybe something was actually wrong with the computer because it was spinning up the well i remember the fan remember the fans kept spinning up and stuff so we thought absolutely like you know is it wasn't is well if me i thought maybe something's actually wrong like ssd yeah would absolutely help i understand i've used ssds prior to this but i thought maybe something was actually incorrect i did not think that it would be 40 minutes to 13 seconds at the most sometimes it was like eight seconds and I'm sorry to say this, but a hard, but Windows, okay, is, in my opinion, not compatible with an HDD. And the reason why I say this is because Windows 10 is much more like a, like a cell phone, like a smartphone now. Depending on your settings, of course, it's going to be sitting there syncing stuff to OneDrive, to Google Drive, to Dropbox. It's going to be checking if stuff in the cloud was added and needs to be pulled down. It's going to be check if, if you have stuff on your local machine that needs to be put up to the cloud. It's going to be checking your ad profile. It's going to be downloading stupid games like Bubble Witch Saga and Candy Crush Saga. It's going to be checking your Microsoft Store if it needs updates. It's going to be it's going to be creating an unlimited amount of log files if an update if a Windows update fails and then it fills up your entire drive. Yes, that happened. That's a that's a little tidbit from a previous episode but it's going to be checking all these things it's going to be checking your location it's going to be checking if you're logged in it's going to be checking the the speed it's going to be checking if you're on a metered connection it's going to be checking 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 and everything lives everything lives on the hard drive and so at the end of the day that hard drive is being constantly accessed when you're talking about something like windows 98 windows 7 windows xp windows up to 8 and 8 is where 8's the line 8's where i started struggling with a hard drive but it wasn't unusable Eight is the line, I'd say. And the reason why that's the line is because it wasn't doing all of that. It wasn't checking a hard drive. It didn't have the Microsoft Store, or at least not as integrated as it is now. Um, it didn't have all this stuff to check. It booted up. It booted up with your startup programs, and that was it. So your startup was long if you had a lot of programs opening. But if you wanted your startup to be quick, you would just start stop those programs. And short of it just you know, qu- quite literally loading the desktop, you were good to go. And then Windows 8, you know, added, I believe it had the Microsoft Store or maybe it had App Store. I think it had the mm-hmm. App Store. It so it started, right? It just started. But it was the it, it was in its infancy, get, you know, with apps and those type of things. So it started there. But now it's just, like, if you go into your event viewer 
on Windows 10, you'll see all the stuff is that's failing and working and informational because it's checking everything. It's checking. You got to remember, I set my color, my favorite color in Outlook, like in terms of the website, the, like Outlook.com, the consumer, you know, whatever web app for mail for Microsoft, and then it pulled that information down, and now my Windows is 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 all red. All of my wallpapers on all my Windows machines are automatically set to the one that's on my main desktop. There, you know, all my Windows machines have had the same the wallpaper for all these years, and that might you might think, well, that's just a single sync. No, it isn't because it has to check. It has to constantly check if you changed it. Did you check the you know? Did you change the wallpaper? No. Just that little check is something on the hard drive. It has to check that image and then quickly do that. It has to check if you're locked. It has to check if you're available. It has to check if you if updates are there. It has to check if you're if your active hours. Are are you know conflicting with an update that it's doing? It has to check if you're working on the thing. It has to check if you're you know if the machine if you're if you're out of your active hours, but you're you know you're still using it, and you know the machine or you are not on a break, and you're you're not you're actually at the computer. It has to check stuff like that. So it's constantly checking your inputs. It checks your hard drive, your hardware now. So because part of the updates is drivers, it has to check the, the the drivers. It has to check all that stuff. And if, depending on how you set up your OneDrive, it might sync your desktops across computers. You can have it be so seamless that your desktops are all synced across computer based on your Microsoft account. So it has to check that. It has to check if your, if your, if your mail is available, if you're using Windows Mail app. It has to check the calendar. It has to check the search. It, like, check, 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 check. This is why an SSD is needed. Because an SSD, it'll be like, you give it a hundred things to search, it's like, bah! and that's it. It's already done. But a hard drive is like, okay, checking one. All right, checking two. Oh, user wanted calculator. Put that after, put that put that after task ten. Like literally, that's what's happening. From a high level, that is what's happening. Mm-hmm. So and yeah. so, and a real brief thing is, the new Xbox Series X is coming out, run by Microsoft and PlayStation Four as well. But regardless, or PlayStation Five as well. But regardless, you can tell they know that heart that storage speed is crucial. Just a few short years ago, games really didn't take advantage of SSDs. They were kind of starting to, but it was like, throw your games on an HDD, you're fine. Have your system run on an SSD, SSD you're fine. That's what I still do, because I don't really care about the loading time too much, because it's not like it's an hour. So it's not that bad. Like, I still have a, a big data drive, because it's cheaper on, on an HDD, and then my system runs on an SSD. But that Xbox Series X, to get back to the point, has an insanely, an insanely fast SSD that... You can't even use an external unless you're playing Xbox One games on it. If you want to put modern Xbox Series X games on there, you have to get essentially a memory card because it needs to be connected via proprietary technology and connected directly to that CPU. Because that thing, or memory manager, or storage manager, or whatever the hell that chip is, I think it's the CPU, that that system... And the PS5, very similar, although the PS5, you can do use a certain very high-speed um, M.2 drive to expand. But the Xbox Series X, to focus on Microsoft, it, they realize that games can run faster, better, easier, and it's not as hard on the hardware if you have an insanely fast thing. So as a result, I would ask, even though this is, this is hardware obsolescence through software, I would ask that Microsoft seriously discourage, seriously discourage, hard drive use for a system drive with Windows 10 because cheap laptop manufacturers and to their credit like of course cheap laptops manufacturers are going to use the cheapest option of everything including using a a hard drive and that is going to fall apart because that experience 
is literally I can't say it I can't say it enough that experience is literally unusable and if you say oh you can turn all this crap no unless Windows 10 has a hard drive mode in which it is like unless they design something in the setup where you're like I'm using a hard drive or it automatically detects it and then as a result changes how Windows 10 works I'm sorry I'm not modifying Windows for an hour or even 10 minutes I'm not modifying Windows to have it work perfectly from original setup if it's broken out of the box it's a broken product that's it that's yep. my rant. Yep, that was a good rant. That was a good like that was a good like ten, fifteen minute rant. Well done. Thank you. Uh but <laughs> the re- the reason that we started this conversation with Matt was because my wife, uh, we bought her a laptop about a year year and a bit ago, and it had a hard drive in it. It also had like this Optane memory SSD cache that was supposed to speed up the hard drive, and for the most part, it was actually working great uh compared to all my other experiences with hard drives and, and Windows. But all of a sudden, now when she needs it the most with quarantine and her working from home, we had the situation arise. The exact same situation that Matt was just describing. I'm not going to describe it again. Like 40-minute boot time. That's all you need to know. 40 minute, 40 minute, 40 minute boot time. Click on, click on an application. Go make a coffee. Uh, you know, go downstairs. Do whatever. Go upstairs. Do whatever. Come back. It's still loading that application. Go back. Literally to that degree. Try to turn off the computer hour and a half sometimes um, that's not again not an exaggeration um and i've seen this before this isn't the first time that matt's seen it this isn't the first time that i've seen it i saw it a lot even before matt was experiencing with it that's why i kept telling matt when he was doing it to just get an ssd like your the windows on the computer cannot work with that hard drive and matt's like no it's probably something wrong because this doesn't make any sense why would it take 40 minutes to do something like an ssd is not going to fix that logically i agree with matt logically like there's no way that like there should be that big of a difference it should it doesn't make sense what i'm understanding is happening is there's a bottleneck happening with all of these telemetry telemetry things that are being sent received whatever there's a bottleneck and that bottleneck is causing collisions between the processor and the hard drive that are constantly like generating issues and every time an issue is generated, it sends something back and whatever. It's adding and to that lineup. It, it, it's, it's it's worsening that, that lineup of tasks. Exponentially, yeah. And then like all of a sudden the, the anti-malware executable will start oh. running in the background that you have no control over. Like Oh, that. If, you, if you have that up. scanning and you have a lot of files, Done. like you might as Done. well not use your computer for the day. I'm not, I'm not joking around. You might as well <laughs> yeah, not use you your computer for the off. entire day and just leave it on. Because <laughs> Windows Update is probably going to update the same day. And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm – I've experienced this. There's been days where I turn on the laptop and I just go to my main desktop and I work on my desktop and it just sits there, spins the fans up, heats up like like a crazy a whole bit. It just sits there. I'm not even doing anything to it. It doesn't auto up. It doesn't open in a game or something. Like, why is it heating up? No, no. I just sit there and scan the files. Like, like 80 minutes later, the UI like comes in all janky because it can't load it. And oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that. I've had that happen multiple times. Not only that, I had a client. Um couple months back before this whole this whole coronavirus thing happened where he contacted me he's like my computer is really slow i need to buy a new computer and i'm like well i'm pretty sure because i built the computer that the computer's fine but we built a we built it like four or five years ago now with a regular hard drive not an ssd and i'm like i think i can fix it for like 50 bucks for you and he's like well if you can't like if you can that's great because i don't want to buy, buy a new computer but i was will, i'm willing to you know he's willing to purchase another thousand dollar computer because of this problem and he's not the only one, obviously. Like, then there's a lot of people that'll just get so frustrated and be like, "Okay, my computer's just old and slow, and I just need to buy a new computer." And that's why I think it is on Microsoft to 
not only strongly discourage, but I think ban. Like I think that if you're trying to install Windows on a hard drive, on a hard disk, it should not let you. It should detect that it's a hard mm-hmm. disk and be like, you cannot install Windows on this. Or disk. have a hard drive Pretty mode where a bunch of stuff's disabled, like Microsoft sure. Store and stuff. Sorry, this Absolutely, is not accessible. Yeah. Absolutely. Have a hard drive mode so that it's actually usable. Whatever. But as it stands right now, Windows 10 is not hardware compatible with hard drive. Period. Period. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no if, ands, or buts. Like, you cannot use it with a hard drive. It'll work sometimes for, like, a good amount of time straight. Like, you might get lucky and it'll just work normally for the most part like it'll be a little slow because it's a regular hard drive but when you get to those times where it's locked up that means you can't work for a day that means you can't work for two days that means you can't work for maybe a week or two because whatever it's doing in the background is conflicting whatever it's doing it'll crash it'll slow you down like you literally literally cannot use your computer like it's not a usable machine so is this planned obsolescence i don't know i think it might be a mistake on on Microsoft's part. It might be a plan with like conspiracy hat on here. It might be a plan with all the other, with some big manufacturers to try to get people to switch to newer computers and stuff like that, because you can't, it's not really reproducible unless it's happening at that very time. Like if you go into a Microsoft store and be like, look, what's happening? You open up the computer and it works fine all of a sudden. Like almost every time that's what happens with this kind of problem, because it is a very specific issue that happens that happens every once in a while. But when it happens, it's not like your computer is no longer a computer anymore. It's a piece of just whatever material it's literally sitting, sitting there on overheating desk. beside you. It's like a mini heater. Yeah, like literally doing nothing and you can't use it. And um, that's all Microsoft, like, in my opinion. Like Microsoft, A, should have tested with a hard drive for longer than like a minute, like opening up. Oh, it works. All yeah, right. your, your first boot is usually all right. Your first like five yeah, to exactly. ten boots. Is, is yeah, it could already. be. It could be. Like I said, she's used it for a year now. She used it very sparingly uh, for the most part, so I can't say that she used it consistently for a year because she had a job and she was using other other computers and other devices uh, for work. But now that she's needed to use it and she started to use it consistently, of course, that's what started to happen. So I put an SSD in there. All the problems went away. That's not mm-hmm. like obvious, obvious solution to the problem is put an SSD into it. But like it shouldn't be that drastic. It shouldn't, there shouldn't, like, yes, boot time should increase from a minute or two minutes to 13 seconds. That's normal. But from 40 minutes, 40 minutes or an hour 40 minutes of to it, 13 of seconds. just like trying to settle. Uh, it, would, yeah, it would load the desktop. But it, there's something wrong there. Yeah. Like, there's something that just like, it's not calculated correctly. You know what I mean? Like there's some sort of mathematical error going on with the speed of the drive. That's all it is. But regardless, that's one thing. The other thing that we wanted to quickly touch on was the uh, the iPhone just the planned obsolescence in general, like, for instance, the iPhone uh, being speed limited as it got older because of the batteries and them not being upfront about it, like them saying, oh, your iPhone's working like normal. That's the only that's the only caveat. Um, yeah. I actually agree as like sort of a as sort of like a capstone to this. I actually agree with hardware obsolescence through software. Sometimes I do agree with obsolescence to an extent. If it's an option. If, if it's an option. Like, don't just change to... Like, USB-C can be easily adapted to micro-USB, and micro-USB can be easily adapted to USB-C through a very, very, very affordable means. USB-A is still around for the obvious reason because there's a bunch of accessories and stuff like that. So all of that stuff is more reasonable in a desktop setting for the most part. I have a problem with all the USBs on a MacBook being being a USB-C because you don't want to have dongles when you're walking around with a MacBook because it's a portable computer. But anyway... UX issues aside, 
I don't necessarily disagree with obsolescence or like choosing things to make, make, make things obsolete. And I actually like the fact that Apple slowed down their phones to do this battery thing. But what it should have happened is when it did its diagnostic check, what it should have did is it should show up with a full screen thing that you can't skip and say, hey, we notice your battery health is now at the moderate level or whatever the level is. We can keep your speed like this but your, and your battery like this. So keep your battery at its degraded state, but your speed and your performance will be exactly the same. Or we can lower your performance and keep the speed or, and, and keep the endurance of the battery up. Which one do you want? And you can select this in the settings anytime. And just have it be a forced thing that someone has to see and has to click on. Done. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even get why they just didn't do that. It, it's Apple either. trying to be consumery and be like, ooh, let's hide. Like, let's, you know, let's make the, our experience completely seamless. Well, it, it can't. It's wear and tear. Like, if someone scratches the screen, the screen isn't going to heal itself. <laughs> yeah. If I was, like, an apple thing would have been to do that, right? And then be like... Hey, there's a promotion for the phone. Like, if you trade in this phone right now, you get the newest phone for 100. Oh yeah, you know, five ninety nine. I'm surprised they didn't. That do would that. have been the Apple thing to. I'm surprised. Like, why didn't they do that? I mean, people yeah, would be screaming kind of obsolescence then, though. Yeah, like, absolutely. Holy crap. But but if you have the choice, and they give you a promotion, yeah, I don't know. Like, it just it, that that kind of strategy makes more sense than just hiding it and denying it until someone actually finds the code and be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah we did that. And then, you know, enabling the option of turning it off. Like, that that's a scummy thing to do. The other thing that happened uh, was Sonos. I don't know if you heard about this, Matt, but they actually bricked or sorry, they were going to brick one of their products, their first one of their first gen products. Oh, I think I've, I've heard like some talking yeah. about this, but I don't actually know exactly. Yeah, they, they actually went back on that now. But there was a big stink, obviously, raised where like people with the first gen Sonos uh, received notifications saying, hey. Uh, your Sonos will no longer work after January something, whatever, 2020. Um, here's a coupon, like a 10% off coupon for the newest Sonos GG. See, I, I <laughs> th- that's ridiculous. Like literally will not work. Like as in like you cannot use it as a speaker anymore. See, that, that that's ridiculous because like if you use an old BlackBerry, my mom does. Like BlackBerry World and stuff is shutting down if not has already shut down. That's the BlackBerry App Store for those that are unenlightened. But um, – that has like you know is shutting down or has shut down, but she's still able to text, call, take pictures on it, send the pictures. She's able to do the basic things that were locally computed. Should you expect those online services to always be available? No. So like that, like that type of obsolescence is normal. We recently had a client approach us with a very old version of Joomla, very old version of Joomla, and I'm talking about running on a running on a PHP version that was sold. That when I called PHP, it was like what? I was like, <laughs> what? Like, excuse me. <laughs> Or no, it, was a, it didn't call PHP. It called SQL. It was like it was like MySQL. Yes, and I was like, oh, maybe I have to use like SQLi. What's SQLi? Um, what? So like it got to be like so. What we told them was, you know, you can absolutely continue to use this website, but can it be backed up? No. If something goes wrong with it, can it be fixed? No, not really. Can you, you know, can we add to it? We probably shouldn't because if something goes wrong. It's going to take the whole thing down. It's going to have to be redone. Or at least you're going to have to go to someone else or the original person that did it and get them to fix it because I can't get it to run. And we even tried like different versions of the PHP, the old versions. I tried a version from 2004 or five or something like that. And so are we forcing them to be obsolescent? No. But like obsolete? No. They can still use their site as they were now. Is it the most secure thing in the world? Most likely. Most definitely not. The UX is, is horrible too. The mobile site's really bad too. Um, But... I mean, it works like, like it, 
I say it's horrible, but only by today's standards. The site looks fine. You know, it's modern enough. People will see that it's dated, but it works. Like, go credit to the other company that did it. For that time period when they did it? Yeah, absolutely. That's fine. But to the company that owns it, like the, the, the people, like the not the web agency, but their customer, their former customer, the people that we're talking to right now, that they should be saying like, hey, we got to update this. Like, this is bad. Like, this looks like, this looks, you know, not, this looks, I don't want to say it looks like crap, but it like, the, the, the admin panel looks like crap by, today, by my modern standards. Like, you need to do an update. Sorry. You need to invest some money in this. Sorry. So I agree with obsolescence like that. Otherwise, we'd be nowhere. Otherwise, we'd still be using rechargeable batteries with memory. You know, it wouldn't be lithium ion or anything crap. It'd be like, you remember how, like, if you charge your battery at 70%, it would immediately, like, after that, be like, oh, and 70% is the maximum. And then people were like, oh, you could do this thing where you discharge it. Like, no, I'm not playing with a freaking battery. Like, I'm not, I'm not screwing around with a battery all night. Like, that's it. So I agree with also obsolescence to an extent, but not, like, you know what I mean? Just, like, some stuff is just like, why? Could you imagine them, like, all, like, making, I almost said making the headphone jack obsolescent, obsolete. Huh. But I don't Imagine have a, a headphone jack on this phone. Because I'm not it's a disgusting. play. disgusting. It's a disgusting port. Disgusting port. I'm using a headphone jack right now, which is disgusting. How dare you? Yeah, me too. You're using a headphone jack. I'm I'm, I'm pulling out. That's it. <laughs> Just so that we I'm have no ma- like mass echo. Yeah. But <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it like something for... Okay, well, that's a, good, that's a good example. So this isn't through software. But forced obsolescence, like something like the headphone jack, that's dumb. Uh, yeah. doing something like slowly making, for no slowly reason. making, that's the thing. So slowly making Bluetooth headphones affordable, more affordable and way better to the point where over 50% of the market buys Bluetooth headphones, then say, yep, there goes the headphone jack, kill it. That makes total sense. The IR blaster, prime example, IR blaster on some phones. I have some older phones, some LG phones that have an IR blaster for, uh, you can use like a TV remote right in the phone. That's a great thing for UX. You don't have to look around for your remote. You just have your phone. You always, you know, you typically have your phone on you and stuff like that. That's really great. Not that many people were using it, so they got rid of it. Yeah, there was a vocal minority that was screaming about it, but at the end of the day, I forgot about it. So if it's something that I can forget or the the general consumer can forget, then yes, that's obsolescence. It's just like okay, this is done. That's it. It's over. Yeah, the headphone jack thing was just a way to make money for the Bluetooth headphones, I, which I agree with. But they should have just made AirPods and stuff. Like, AirPods, for example, are, like, almost like a status symbol, okay? Now, I have Galaxy Buds because I have a Samsung phone. But I really like the ability to use, like, uh, we have, what's that other one that we bought, Mike? The cheaper one, AirDots. The Redmi AirDots. I use the AirDots for throwing in my bag and stuff like that mm. and, and, and whatever, and they last much longer than the Galaxy Buds. But the Galaxy Buds are of higher quality, and they're also, as a result, uh, they la- well, they last less, for one thing. And another thing is, like, as a result of them being more expensive, I don't want to get them all smashed up. So I don't just throw them into a bag. I, like, place them in a sock or something in the bag, for example. It's because they're expensive. So, or I- now I have a case on them. But anyway, the point is, like, the those two things are a better experience than pulling out a huge cable, getting stuck on it, having all this crap, right? Those are a better experience. But in some in some ways, in, in in some ways, of course, there's you know there's pros and cons to everything. But if they had if they had kept like throwing you know 
AirPods and everything else as a status symbol or just as like, hey, look at this, look at this, look at this, where they keep making the wired, but they keep, they don't advertise it and they, they do the, the wireless. If you keep advertising to me how great wireless is and how amazing it is and how good it is and how the batteries are better now in them and blah, 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 blah. You keep telling me this over and over and over again. I'm going to eventually, and as anyone else, next time I need headphones are going to go look, find, because they're a popular market, find one of the cheaper options, try it. Or, you know, wherever my budget is, cheaper, higher expensive, whatever, choose one that fits my audio quality, fidelity needs, and then I'm going to go with it. Like, I have, because wireless headphones are better now, which I think they are actually better, I will will concede that, I have a Sony pair back there for listening to the podcast, I have a Jaybird X3 over here, uh, which is a backup. I have, I have those Xiaomi AirDot and I have AirDots and I have the Galaxy Buds. Now that's because I listen for so long because I'm usually at work where I have to keep like one, one's dead, charge this one, pull these other ones out. So that is annoying, right? That's annoying. That there, there's a caveat, but that experience where I can just quickly go from headphone to whatever is so much better. One of the ma- one of the major revolutions is, and like they could have did this at Wired, but I don't think they ever did. They may have somewhere. I'm not a headphone expert. Is the the gestures on the the gestures slash the touching on the Galaxy Buds? I have the first version of Galaxy Buds, and when someone comes and starts talking to me, I press and hold my left ear. I release microphones turn on. I can hear them. Done. Like that is a UX. That is a UX masterpiece. Like to be to be blunt, that is amazing. And there's no wires. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but they, but they but they need to UX you to obsolescence. They don't. They shouldn't be just like ah, bang. You know, that's it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Apple is very preemptive, and not actually not really, but like sometimes they're very preemptive with their obsolescence, like the keyboard situation where they're just like, now nah, use this keyboard. Everyone hates it. We don't care. Just keep using. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Keep, keep using this keyboard because everyone yeah, wants keep, thin keep, Everyone hates, but, but yeah, but everyone hates it. Yeah, but just keep using it. Just keep doing it. Just keep using that keyboard. Like we, you know, you we know you love it. No, actually, sir, we we really really hate that keyboard. And it's broken. No, we know we yeah you, it breaks all the time. I uh, know you actually love this keyboard. Just keep you look at this new piece of crap that we made. Look at this. Use this keyboard. This is the same keyboard. Use it. Look at it. So they're they're very stubborn in that approach. Um, but they're also very stubborn in adapting new technologies, which is also weird. Like they they take time. In, Folding phones. They're not going to make a folding phone probably for three or four three, years. Three or four years, yeah. I'd, I'd say that's about right. Three or four years. Which is weird to me because why take away the headphone jack preemptively when you can just make a really shitty folding phone that everyone's going to buy anyway because it's an Apple product that'll break every minute and then just keep feeding people folding phones. You know what I mean? Like they, it's very dual, like diacular or whatever you want to call it. Like it just stick to one. Like if you're, if you're, if you want to wait for technology to mature, wait for technology to mature. Like that should be your motto. That's a great motto. I like that. Just be patient. I, I think their motto is, like maybe unofficially, I remember them saying on stage once, we don't do it first, but we do it best. Yeah, except for the headphones. Parap- I'm paraphrasing they what they said. It was years yeah. ago, but except for the headphones. Yes. Well, I mean, yes. see, the thing is, is I, I have no 10 plus here. It would make a lot of sense if they said we had to remove the headphone jack to add the stylus, but there's been several iterations of the note where they had both. It, it, it would be different if they were like, yeah, we want no to try reason. a stylus. Yeah. So we had to remove the headphone jack. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's a little different. Okay. There's no technical reason. There's no, no technical there's reason no at all. Liter- yeah, there's literal no tech- literally no technical reason. It's only, and I mean only, for uh, selling Bluetooth headphones. There's people saying, oh, you can't have like uh, full waterproofing with it, but it's been proven that you can. You definitely can. There's phones out there that have it, so. 
Yeah, so whatever. I don't know. It's they say they also break. That, that's a whole. I've had one headphone jack break my whole life. Yeah, like a really shitty headphone jack on like a really bad MP3 player I had broke. I think that's it. So like, what the hell they're are really they talking? Pretty, about? They're a pretty durable part. Nothing. They're not talking about anything. They just want more. They just want more money for their Bluetooth division. Whatever. Ugh. It's fine. We've accepted it. Now we're we're plebs if we have headphone jacks. I have a headphone jack in my phone. Disgusting. I might as well not even exist. I'm, I'm, I'm shutting. I'm shutting down the Zoom call right that's now. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Um, I can live with that. So, and my next phone will probably not have a headphone jack. I can live with that. I've I've given I've given up essentially on that front. Given up on the coronavirus. So given up on that. Everything is done. <laughs> oh <God>. But um, <laughs> with that, with that being said, I think we've covered everything, everything that we need to cover with planned obsolescence and project based learning. Well, what what is you your capstone for the web news? Not to interrupt, but what is your capstone? So my capstone, my capstone is I think companies should either be upfront about it, like we were talking about with Apple, like telling people that they are doing obsolescence, right. and with Microsoft, they should like if if they planned it or if they didn't, and it was a glitch, and they found out because I'm sure they know by now, they should come out and say that our product does not work on hard drives. Be purposeful with your obsolescence so at least the consumers don't suffer because like you said cheap laptop manufacturers are still using hard drives and to their credit they should be because they're because they're not being told otherwise they're a cheap laptop manufacturer it's not about being told if they're told they're not going to do it they it has to be an actual set limitation in the software it won't they won't change unless it's a set if they tell them they're going to be like well this is the cheap segment we don't care you know what I mean? Like it's not that's not the problem. I think it, there has to be action taken. They should take it. They should they should actually limit hard drives because SSDs are cheap now. There's no reason for hard drives to be your boot drive anymore. It's great for storage still. That's it. I agree. I agree so with that. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's my capstone on the on the issue. Uh, so I guess nothing else to do but run the old conclusion then uh so thank you for listening make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice you can find us on those socials via at html all the things on facebook and instagram or at html everything on twitter we're on medium and we're on github and we got a couple new guides on that medium actually so go check that out a couple new articles whatever uh anyway so remember we're also on patreon that's patreon.com slash html all the things check out those tiers and give that a go and many thanks to our three dollar tier patron sean from RabbitWorks javascript find him at youtube.com slash rabbit javascript garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. Find him at localpathcomputing.com. Craig, aka Cosworth. Ryan Gadgel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at blueblackdigital.com. Chris from Self Made Web Designer. Find him at selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker. Find him at thewebhacker.com. And DL Ford from dlford.io. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you're listening to this on. And we are signing off. <laughs> <laughs>